Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Tel Luca. ABMP is a proud sponsor of the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. All massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and the massage profession at abmp.com slash COVID-19. That's abmp.com slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Bodywork magazine. For more, check out the ABMP podcast available at abmp.com slash podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen. Recent episodes featuring feature conversations with Ruth Warner, as well as Whitney Lowe and myself. Thanks, ABMP. Hey, Whitney. Yes, we would like to thank them very much. Till, how are you doing today? Hey, pretty good. How about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, looking forward to our conversation today. We have a couple of uh, very interesting, fascinating guests joining us today. Yeah. So I uh, would like to take just a brief moment to introduce Dr. Ann Blair Kennedy and one of her students, Kimmy Balligan, who are here to join us in our conversation today. So um, Dr. Kennedy, many people in the profession know you as ABK. I'll ask you to just take away and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'll have Kimmy also do the same thing. Let us know a little bit about your background and, and uh, why you're here with us today. Great. Thank you so much. I'm so thankful that y'all are asked us to come on the show and, and it has been a great experience to work with Kimmy. And so a little bit about me, as you said, I am in the profession and I have been in the profession for almost 21 years. Um, I started out, I had a great career, had a great practice in a little rural town down here in South Carolina. And then I got really interested in massage therapy research. And so I decided to go back and get my doctorate and I have a doctorate in health promotion, education, behavior, and began working at the university of South Carolina school of medicine, Greenville, where I teach a number of things, including social determinants of population health and uh, what some call cultural competence. I look at it more as justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in health and medicine. Dr. Um, Kennedy, sorry, you teach those two, uh, to whom? Medical students. Medical students. There you go. Okay, thank you. Yes, first and second year medical students is mainly who I teach to. I also teach a fourth year elective, um, which I will get to in just a moment, which is how I got in touch with Kimmy. Um, I also am uh, quite active in the profession. I am the chair of governance for the American Massage Therapy Association, and I am also the executive editor and editor-in-chief for the International Journal of Therapeutic Massage and Bodywork a peer-reviewed scientific journal, open access, fully free for people to get to our research and also free to publish in, which, you know, is a little different in an open access model. But I also, so I, like I said, I teach a little bit to the fourth year students. I teach a course on gender and sexuality in a clinical environment. And this past spring, um, our students were pulled out of the clinical environment in March. And my uh, dean asked me to take the course that I teach in person and put it online. And lo and behold, Kimmy was in my class. And <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's how we got to. She'd been in my classes before, but this is a very small class. We only had 10 students. So we really started to build a relationship. And then class was over, and I got an email. And I'll hand it over to you, Kimmy, at this point <laughs> to tell you how it progressed. Yeah. So um, I am Kemi Balligan. I'm a fourth year medical student at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, Greenville. 
Um, so my background, just a little bit, um, I graduated from Wake Forest University with a degree in biology. Um, I plan on pursuing a career in obstetrics and gynecology, and I have some interest in women's mental health as well as healthcare disparities. So like Dr. Kennedy mentioned, I enrolled in her gender and sexuality studies virtual elective, because I thought, you know what, this is gonna be very important for my future as an OBGYN, and I loved the course. <laughs> so I sent her a bit of a love letter afterwards, <laughs> just kind of expressing my appreciation for Wait, no, was the this, class. This was before your grades were uh, you know, sent out? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was before. Uh, it was a pass-fail class, so most of <laughs> it. But this was a right. genuine, you know, I really enjoyed the topic, and I enjoyed the way she um, moderated those very sensitive discussions. Um, and I said, you know, I'm really interested in the work that you do. Is there any opportunity for me to join in on any current research projects? And that's how we uh, started talking about Project COPE. Um, Tell us about Project COPE. What is that? Well, so right at the start of the pandemic, um, I had actually come back from an AMTA board meeting when things we're starting to move very quickly here in the US. And um, I started to see the massage profession get very isolated and upset and panicky. This is all through social media and through my friends in the profession. But also because I work in a health system, we had other things going on. So one of my very good friends and my co-primary investigator on the study on Project COPE is, his name is, um, Smitty Hevener Sullivan, and he is an RN who's been working in ERs and critical care, but he's also working on his PhD. And so he's actually a research manager for one of the programs in the health system. And we've been talking about this at, from an evaluation standpoint about how in the past, when there have been tragic events of any type, healthcare workers are not usually talked to in during the event, they're usually talked to after. And we were seeing that we could potentially start gathering data um, from health, all types of healthcare workers um, from, we were thinking really just starting in the US, but we ended up going global. Um, and it started because there was a study that was already going on in our emergency department. And we really wanted to put a little bit of a qualitative mixed methods spin on it, but we ended up not being able to do that in our local level. So we decided to take their methods and expand the study and really look at all healthcare professions from those who were locked out of the healthcare system, oftentimes called non-essential, and those who were the frontline workers. And we really wanted to see what the differences that were going on and maybe follow these different uh, individuals over time. And so we launched Project COPE. And with that, we also ask for video diaries. So we have a set of surveys that go out that people can sign up for. And this is a longitudinal study, meaning we're following people over time. So they take an initial, initial survey and then they can um, say that they wanna be part of the study and we send them out. And we started out at weekly surveys, but now we're going to maybe once every other week or once a month with some different measures that we're looking at. What, what is it's like a study? Yeah, oh, yes. Till, go ahead. What does COPE stand for? Ah, chronicling Healthcare Providers Pandemic Experiences. 
we scientists really like our um, acronym. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Chronically healthcare providers, pandemic experiences. Okay. Yes. So it's a qualitative yes. study. You're gathering it's data. It's mixed methods. Mixed methods. What, tell, mixed us, methods. tell us what that means, if you don't mind. So that means we're getting quantitative or numerical data from some um, validated survey items, scale items. We're looking at burnout and moral distress and coping mechanisms. And then we're also getting some qualitative data or usually thinking of words and pictures. Um, in this, we're asking for a video journal. Uh, and not everybody who is in the study gives us those video journals. Um, and that we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a little bit because that's exactly what Kimmy's doing for us. She's helping us uh, review those pieces of that part of the study. Exactly. It may be a little early to kind of extrapolate some of those things, but what are your what's your sensation of the, some of the kinds of things that you're likely to be finding by looking at this in the midst of the activities, opposed to retroactively looking at it after it's over? I mean, I mean, I, it seems like you know a lot of times people's perceptions may be a little bit colored by looking backwards as opposed to what I'm really feeling right now. So, anything in particular you think that you're likely to find out of that uh, with this approach? Well, that's a really interesting question. And so it's what we can really see where we can see that the most are in those people that do um, stay with us throughout the study and fill out information over time. And probably the one who can answer that best is actually Kimmy, because she's the one who's watching all of our videos. But I want to tell you a little bit about how we brought her in and why. And that's kind of why we're here, too. All right, good. Okay? Yeah. yeah. So my great team that i'm working with it's a multi-institutional um multi, a very multidisciplinary team um, as i mentioned my colleague smitty we also have nikki monk which some of you may know of she's also a massage therapy researcher at um, indiana university i have a couple of colleagues from clemson tom Britt, and marissa shuffler porter as well as um, chloe wilson is our fantastic um, project coordinator she's a graduate student we have um, Shannon Stark-Taylor, who is a clinical psychologist within uh, Family Medicine at Prisma. We have Molly Beninum, who is from Appalachian Regional Healthcare System. So you can see it's like this big team working together. Oh, we also have um, Kendall Dean, who's a medical student with us as well. And um, Hannah Metwally, who is a recent graduate from Furman University. So we have this big, broad team. Um, and Hannah just joined us. But one thing that we noticed as our team, as Smitty and I do this work quite a bit, we realized we're all white, a bunch of white people, multidisciplinary, bunch of different fields, but we were all white. <laughs> and we were like, hmm, this really isn't great. Uh -huh. This is not the way we should do research. This is not the way we want to do research. And then Kimmy sent me the email. So what did you say, Kimmy? <laughs> so uh, she told me, about Project COPE and I said, well, this sounds very interesting. Um, and she was very transparent and she said exactly what she said to you all. We are an all white team and we recognize that that is an issue. Uh, would you be interested in joining the study? And I said, of course. Um, and I it said, not yeah, white. <laughs> I, I am black. <laughs> um, and I said, yes, with the idea of um, bringing a different perspective to the table um, I will have the ability to tap into my networks, my communities, um, and hopefully um, uplift and highlight minority voices to ensure that everyone's voice is heard in this project. Um, so 
I was very glad that she brought that up because that was going to be my mission anyway. <laughs> um, and I would like to bring up one thing here. Um, so it's really important to diversify your team, but it's also important not to tokenize your minority team members. And what I mean by that is that, yes, you have a diverse team and you've included a non-white participant or person, but it is not that person's sole responsibility to bring forth ideas of inclusive, excuse me, inclusivity. It is a collective effort. And that's just one step to ensuring that everyone's voice is heard. Um, so I would just like to bring that up. It is not, I don't speak for all black people and it is not solely my responsibility. I'm just here to bring a different perspective and hopefully encourage everyone to consider experiences outside of themselves. I think that's great. And this is interesting. Kemi, I'm curious to hear from your experience as a student too. Um, you know, we speak about underrepresentation in certain areas, and um, I, I don't know the statistics on representation of people of color in medical school programs, but I would imagine it probably isn't reflective of the overall population. Um, and just curious to hear um, how you feel that perspective since Project Hope is looking at how healthcare providers are uh, responding here. You know, what else is being brought up about? Well, maybe is this delving into some of these bigger questions about um, the representation and diversity within our healthcare teams? Uh, yeah, so I'm glad that you brought that up. So, according to the double um, AMC, uh, about five percent of active physicians in the United States identify as Black or African American. And in my class, a class of 2021, um, Black students made up about 10% of the class. Um, so there is an issue of representation of Black uh, people in medicine. Mm -hmm. um, and that's an issue because studies show that when patients see physicians who are similar to themselves, they're more likely to seek out preventative care. They spend longer time with their doctors and they report higher satisfaction of care received. Um, there are also studies that show that there are better outcomes when you have increased representation of black physicians in medicine. Those so, are important things. I just wanna jump in there because those are important things to really underline or take a moment for because uh, you know many, of us have inclusivity and inclusion and represent, representation as values in and of themselves. But then I know that there's there are a lot of different views on the subject. But when we start to talk about what are the other, how does that trickle out into the larger effects or the effectiveness of the healthcare system, that turns the conversation around and makes it a different conversation. It really does. Especially it's something when that's, you... Yeah, it's really under um, underreported and under-discussed is the impact that that has on, um, on healthcare practice and, and, and uh, delivery of, of healthcare in, in these communities. And Kimmy, so I'm uh, sorry for jumping in, but I, as I understood, you were saying that a, uh, a, a more inclusive representation of practitioners has different health effects in the population it serves. Right. It, it, it improves health outcomes for minority populations. So that has been supported in the literature, and that just indicates that we have more work to do to increase representation. Um, 
And unfortunately, this is not an issue that's unique to just medicine. Um, Dr. Kennedy and I were investigating the lack of representation of Black massage therapists in the field. Um, and we see similar patterns there. Um, do, you have, do you have numbers for us at all? Or? We do, actually. Um, so these come from the U.S. Labor Department, I believe. And it seems that about 8%, 8.8% are Black or African-American, 13.1% are Asian, 11.1% are Hispanic or Latino, and 72.3% are white. And when we look at the gender differences as well, 83, from this bit of data, it's indicating 83.6% are female, are women, where when we look at I've seen anywhere from 80 to 88% of the profession is women, this are women massage, in massage therapy. Massage, massage therapy. therapy. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we definitely see a disparity in who is there and who's represented. And also, if you look at who receives massage therapy, there's data from 2012. We don't have, that's the most recent data that we have but there is a clear disparity in who receives massage therapy. And those who receive massage therapy are mostly white women, somewhere between 35 and 50. And you see that in Google images, right? You go search oh, yeah. massage therapy yeah. and you are going to see luxurious settings with white women giving and receiving massage therapy. It takes a scroll or two to find either a man or a person of color. Either giving or receiving. Yeah, and, and I would I would probably argue that's more than a scroll or two, probably because I've <laughs> I've looked, you know, in trying to do graphic things for some of our courses or promotion materials, and and you got to really dig. Uh, you really got to dig to find find other things like that. So um, I'm curious, um, you know, how this this the sort of the picture and the representation that comes out about what massage therapy or you know in this instance we're talking mainly about massage therapy and soft tissue manual therapy approaches what you know the the way it is represented how that impacts somebody's desire and willingness to want to receive that so Kemi, I believe you mentioned you've received massage before. Like did you have any of those kinds of perceptions um, initially when you first got exposed to it? Uh, yes. So um, in that meeting that Dr. Kennedy and I had back <laughs> a couple of months ago, she brought up Project COPE and she mentioned that we do have a large number of participants who are in the massage therapy field. And I said, well, you know, I receive massage regularly. Um, and I kind of said it sheepishly. And she said, she well, did. She did. <laughs> and she, she she probed a little and she said, well, why do you say it like that? And, and then that's where the discussion began. I basically explained to her that it's seen as a luxury um, in the black community. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, as you mentioned, Whitney, the media does not reflect us in any way. Um, so I think that the lack of representation of black folks in, in massage therapy it's probably due to a lack of personal experience um, in the field itself. So if you haven't received a massage, um, you're largely unaware of the health benefits, you probably 
aren't privy to the career opportunities available in the field. So I think that to examine why there's a lack of their black therapists, uh, you need to start thinking about why there is a lack of black clients or patients. Mm-hmm. So right. I think it's a threefold issue. Um, so economics, education, access. So economics, like I mentioned before, and I don't speak for all black people, but I suspect that many view massage as a luxury, one that they probably cannot afford. Um, Another is they're probably not aware of the health benefits. Um, I think that's probably um, an issue across the board, but probably more so within the black community considering the lower health literacy levels um, plaguing the community. And then you also have to think about access. So my introduction to massage was via a franchise. And I think about, well, where are those stores located? Are they located in lower income communities, which are largely occupied by minority and black populations? And if they're not, well, then how would you expect someone who maybe is aware of the health benefits to access those services? So if we can tackle those issues, increase the number of black people getting massage, it may have a trickle down effect on the number of um, black people who may say, hey, this is a great service. I want to pursue a career in it, potentially. I'm I'm curious about your your early and first, very first experience with receiving massage. Can you tell me a little bit about like what it felt like when you were like making the decision to make that appointment and to go in there? Um, What what was kind of like the driving factor that made you think, I think I want to try this. I think I want to check this out. Or were you going because you, you know, needed to for a health reason or what, what kind of drove you there to begin with? So again, it was, it was, um, it links back to my idea or my, my perception of it being a, a luxury. So I actually went for, as, as a, as a birthday present for myself. Uh-huh. Good for you. <laughs> and I loved it. And I said, well, I'm going to go again. And I just found myself going more and more often. And eventually it just became a part of my wellness routine. So my initial introduction was just, this is a gift. This is a luxury rather than this is a legitimate or could be a legitimate part of my wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We had a long talk about that. We sure uh-huh. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. Well, and I think that's, you know, you've hit on something that I think is so valuable about um, messaging that we as a profession really need to do some work on um, to get out there. And, and some of uh, this is something that um, Benny Vaughn brought up in his discussion when we were talking about this with him of, you know, how do we reach out to those communities of, of um, you know, African-American communities and places where people are in minorities that, you know, s- schools seem to be struggling to get new students in there. Let's like put out some effort to go find where some of these people are in these people in these communities that are underrepresented um, in our profession. I think we, we all could be doing a, lot, a good bit more work in that area. And your story, Kimmy, makes me think that it's, um, maybe we don't have to worry about even selling it really hard as much as introducing it. Because, exactly. Yeah, because it almost, once you experience it, once you're involved, you know, you know the value of it once you receive a decent massage. Absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad your experience at the franchise was decent enough for you to want to go back. That is, that's saying a lot. It's fantastic. 
And you know, I I actually really like the franchises, and I mm. have since the beginning because of their price point. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at the national average, um, which is now reaching into seventy five dollars or something, um, it's getting close to seventy five dollars for a one hour session. The franchises are generally a little bit lower than that, and so I think of that for those who maybe are school teachers. They can't necessarily afford to go to a high-end spa where it costs $200 to get a session. Mm -hmm. But you can still get great sessions at the franchises, but it all comes down to management. That's a whole other discussion that I don't want to hold. I'll go yeah, and send us down the line. Too. Certainly is a is a big wormhole. But you know, I will I will tag one thing onto that because I think you are hitting an interesting point here. We hear a lot of franchise bashing in our profession because of some of the economic models for the practitioners that are let's say less than ideal in a number of situations. But people will oftentimes bash the franchises as like getting a poor massage experience in the franchise and people need to remember the franchise doesn't deliver the massage. It's a person who's a massage therapist there who's delivering that. If you had a bad experience, it's probably because the practitioner didn't give you a really good experience. It's not because of the place where they worked. Um, It has a lot less to do with, with getting a good experience there. So, and there's some really very fine therapists working in franchise situations. So it's a lot more to do with the individuals themselves and, Kemi, luckily, it sounds like you had a good person that you interacted with that first time. Otherwise, you might have thought, eh, this is not for me. I'm not. Uh, <laughs> right. That happens to a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you, Whitney, for, uh, you know, I think maybe some of my uh, bias was showing through. I, I First thing I thought when I heard a, a franchise, like, oh, boy, I hope it was good. Uh-huh. But, yeah, well, you, you bringing that point up that it is the person. I'm just thinking of all the students I know that practitioners, skilled practitioners that come to my class who. I would get sessions from them anytime. So I got I to gotta work on my own attitude about that franchise yeah. thing, I think. So uh, and for, it's, for me, it usually comes down to the franchise owner because if you keep therapists there for a longer period of time and you're treating them well, then that's great. If you have a lot of turnover in any business, any business that has a lot of turnover, that's where the issue comes in. So, yeah, we can go on and on about the the ethics and different pieces around franchises for hours, I'm yeah, sure. Right. So, yeah, I've got another question I want to bring up here, kind of getting back to Project COPE and also some other things that we're talking about here with some of the diversity issues. But we want to take a brief moment here just for our halftime sponsor. We're going to uh, hear a brief message from Andrew Beal, uh, author of Trail Guide to the Body, from our sponsor, Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional body work. Check out our kinesiology, pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support the thinking practitioner and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the booksofdiscovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. And thanks to Andrew Beal and Books of Discovery for their support. Uh, please do be sure to check out their great offer. And thank you again for supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. So um, I want to uh, uh, pose a question to, to really to both of you um, about something I heard just recently. This was on um, uh, the Massage Therapy Without Borders uh, 
podcast. And I believe, AK, you've been on that podcast once before. This is something they were talking about just the other day. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cal Gates and and Kathy Ryan. Yeah, Cal Gates Mm -hmm. and Kathy Ryan from uh, um, BC and and, uh, Virginia area. So they were talking about this concept, and I had never heard this term before, and I thought this was really a fascinating perspective. They were uh, talking about the disparity or the um, the incidence, let's say the, the high incidence of a number of major health problems that seem to be more prevalent in the black community than they are, than they are for white people, for example. And, you know, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of uh, many lifestyle um, illnesses. And there's been this sort of running um, dialogue for many years that this was the result of genetic differences that made them more susceptible to these kinds of diseases. And they were talking about this concept called weathering, which I had never heard weathering before. Weathering hypothesis, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought it was really fascinating, the idea of, you know, really maybe some of the more socioeconomic factors around, um, you know, racial prejudice and uh, some of the systemic racism in our culture are actually playing a bigger part in that whole healthcare perspective. Uh, so t- can you talk about that for just a moment? I. I'm going to see what Kimmy has to say first before I dive in, because I could dive in for a long period of time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so my thoughts are that, you know, the whole genetic argument is, uh, is bogus, (laughs) quite frankly. Um, So we have to recognize and acknowledge that a lot of minority populations, specifically black people are, um, disadvantaged historically. So again, thinking economically, um, we earn much less. So we may not have the means to go and see a physician regularly. Um, So that can lead to uncontrolled diabetes or uncontrolled hypertension, therefore leading to poor outcomes. Um, Also, it would be remiss of me not to mention the um, historical relationship between physicians and Black people. Um, There is a mistrust within the Black community um, of physicians. Um, The Tuskegee experiments, um, amongst many other examples, contribute to that. So even if you do have the means you might not trust your physician or you might not go regularly. And then that could also lead to poor outcomes. Um, Some black people live in food deserts, so you don't have access to um, good quality, healthy food or your neighborhoods aren't sourced with um, parks. So you don't have a cheap and accessible means of getting regular routine exercise. Um, so that's just, those are just a few examples of why we may be seeing some of these trends or healthcare disparities. Yeah, interesting. And, and also, you know, they were mentioning the, the potential um, impact on the suppression of the immune system from a constant life of being in fear or apprehension for many people about the social instances in which they are going to live uh, and, and the, the encounters that they may have in this society. And what, what some of the literature in this area of, of the weathering hypothesis has been looking at for a long period of time is we know across the board that there is a greater morbidity and mortality or people get an illness or die quicker in the African-American or black community. And so 
as Kimmy was saying, some of it is thought of as maybe it's the socioeconomic status. Well, when you compare people of the same socioeconomic status, um, black people and white people, the black people are still dying quicker and at a younger age than the white people. So then, dear Lord, what is it? What is it that's getting to them that is making them die quicker than white people? And that's where the people were starting to think about that biological differences between the two. It's actually what they're starting to see is that it's this systemic racism. So that constant microaggression and the constant wearing, wearing down on them, that constant stress and inflammation makes them die quicker and get more diseases. And so this constant racism that they're facing in the United States, let alone having issues with, oh, police forces, um, it just impacts them much differently than other populations. And they've shown similar things of how racism, the science has when I say they, there was a really interesting study, and I don't have it pulled up here right now, that was done right around 9-11, within a couple of years of 9-11. Um, and I was talking about it with uh, Hannah on our team not too long ago, where they were looking at birth outcomes for Arabic women in the U.S. before and after 9-11, thinking that this could be a natural experiment to see what racism does to individuals. And if you ever look at how we ask people about race and ethnicity, we don't ask people to identify if they're Arab, you know, of Arabic heritage or Arab American anyway. So this group had to pick a proxy. So they looked at names, last names more than anything. And I believe this was done in California and they were looking at birth outcomes for like the nine months before 9-11 and then the nine months to a year after. I can't remember all of it right here in my head, but it was something to that effect. And when you look at the birth incomes after 9-11, the women have worse birth outcomes hmm. across the board. Lower birth weight babies. If you have an Arabic last name, then you're yes. more likely to have a worse birth income after 9-11 and before. Shortly in this brief time period. In the brief so time it was, period. it was, I can't say that that is true now, hmm. but in this time period that they were looking at, that's what they were seeing. There were worse birth outcomes for people with, appeared to be from an embarrassment, uh, Arabic heritage. Dr. Kennedy, thank you for bringing that up. Um, this brings to mind um, the fact that Black women here in the United States are actually um, five times more likely to die from birth, um, even when you control for income, level of education, and all of that. Um, so it just makes you wonder, like you mentioned earlier, well, what is it? Um, and studies are pointing to systemic racism. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, this, this sort of trend is also seen in the black community in terms of maternal um, mortality. And, you know, you know, we were talking about this and this, some of this might be just because of, you know, challenges that some of these individuals are having in their own individual sort of health world that they're in. But it also seems like you know, in, at least in some of the things that I have read about the, the statistics that you were bringing up there, Kemi, that a lot of this uh, can also be traced sometimes to perceptions by the healthcare providers about the quality of care that they're delivering to people of color, that that's not the same quality of care. And that, you know, in one case that uh, a white woman who had this group of symptoms would be bumped up the triage level into more important 
uh, or a more serious, you know, investigation. Whereas the the black mother was not, you know, left down on the on the ward and not, you know, looked into when something serious was going on or something like that. So it seems like those are factors that still play into different parts of our healthcare system. It makes me wonder too, like with this very disproportionate uh, degree of impacts that we're seeing from COVID-19 in the black community, how much of that, you know, is, is happening now in, uh, in relation to some of these same, same things. And uh, very interesting that we're seeing this sort of intersecting with this big kind of reckoning of a lot of people finally coming to say like, all right, I think we actually still, we really do need to start looking at some of these issues of systemic racism throughout our culture. And if you think about, you mentioned inflammation, and, and um, if you think about inflammation as a protective response, an internal physiological protective response, that's a reaction, it's a biological reaction to a perceived threat or damage, then if we extrapolate that out into the context in which we live or the interactions we have, or the physiological or behavioral or biopsychological states that we end up in, it's pretty easy to connect the dots into an inflammatory state, saying if you're, if you're you know, not perceiving yourself as being safe, you're probably more likely to have an inflammatory milieu or a reactive milieu. And as we know, that has all sorts of uh, trickle-down effects. The good news, the good news is uh, we know a thing or two about what helps reduce threat levels. Yeah, we know a thing or two about health and we know the thing or two about like what actually makes the difference for people yeah it seems like um you know one would argue that the the community that may need it the most may need massage therapy or body work the most you know just considering the generational trauma the chronic microaggressions and you know the the toll it takes on the body it seems like we would need it the most but yet we are receiving it the least so that's an interesting, interesting takeaway there. So I think that kind of brings us back to some of those questions we were asking earlier about how do we get it there better? And I think, you know, you you all have hit on some uh, very important things about we've got to start at the grassroots of, of making this, uh, making many of these approaches a lot more um, enticing to these different communities, the, the emphasis on uh, wellness and, you know, health enrichment and health enhancement and, you know, whole life scale health approaches and, and that kind of stuff. It's, it's got to become um, a more, more prevalent in many of these different communities. And I would like to think, you know, hopefully if, you know, one of the potential silver linings that might be coming out of this tremendous time of social unrest that we're seeing in our country is, um, a greater perspective of of outreach into some of these communities for for greater inclusiveness uh, to bring practitioners into uh, into these fields and in much greater representation. And you've given me three levers, at least many, but you've gotten me thinking in three ways: economics. Sure, there's things that I can do that'll help make what I do more available to people economically. Education. That's what I do. I can think about more about how that penetrates into places where it's most needed. And then access. What what can I do to make it possible, convenient, and realistic for people to actually have access to the kind of things I do? I think that's a great uh, way to map out the possibilities for each of us. Mm -hmm. And that really goes across the lines of not only for clients, right? So bringing in more clients and more patients in those areas, but it's also going to the therapist too. So it's really this iterative process that are building upon each other that I think we can get more black people in to become patients and clients 
once we start getting in more therapists and once we start getting in more therapists, we can start getting more clients and it's just going to start building and building upon itself. And it's just, when we look at who, who receives massage in this country, we have so many people that we're not tapping into that can help expand um, public health in a way. So helping people get better health outcomes, we can look at reducing anxiety and stress and um, helping with depression and, you know, helping improve sleep. There's so many different things that we can do with massage therapy that impact people in so many different ways across so many different criteria. So when we look at that stress and that inflammation, we know that we can help them. We see in the literature that we're starting to see some of those mechanisms as well, right? And it's just, I think, so important to get some more outreach and get more therapists in the fields so that we can reach more people. Start sharing ideas, start looking for ways to reach out and make those access routes possible. Mm -hmm. And then you, uh, how about uh, Project COPE? Are there ways that you would like to see people participating there that you're yes. going to take a pitch for here? And thank you for, for bringing us back to that. So what we have seen in the data that we have been gathering, um, not surprisingly, the massage therapists that we that are part of this, along with other healthcare providers, um, from the massage therapist perspective, at least, most of them are women. You would expect that in a profession that it's more women, but we're not seeing representation of men in our study, male massage therapists at least. And as I said, so one of the things people can do in this study is to upload um, a video, a short video blog. Um, that's one of the things we ask them to when we give them some prompts. And Kimmy's job on the study is to review all these. And she's starting to um, watch them over time. And I'm going to hand it over to her and let her tell you a little bit about some of the things that she's been seeing and about who's coming and giving us those vlogs, as we call sure. them. Yeah. So um, like Dr. Kennedy mentioned, we are looking for um, more diversity amongst our participants. Um, as it stands right now, all of the vlog respondents or video um, diary respondents are white. Um, and we have two who are male. So this is a call. <laughs> Two out of how many do you think? Uh, about a hundred or so. Okay, all right. We have more respondents in the whole project, but like we said, not everybody gives us a blog. Exactly. Okay, so a hundred video responses and two of them are male. Yep. Right, so we need more diverse voices. We need um, to hear everyone's story and experience. Um, and I'm just gonna briefly go over um, some of the trends that I've noticed in those video responses. So at the beginning of the pandemic, um, there was a lot of discussion of financial concerns and unemployment, you know, um, how long is this gonna go on? I need to make ends meet. Um, and then once stay-at-home orders were placed, the discussion kind of shifted more towards missing work. Um, a large, a large portion of the respondents are massage therapists. So a lot of people were saying things like, you know, I miss my work. My work brings meaning to my life. And I don't have that right now. Um, and then once states started reopening, there was a lot of frustration that was expressed over the lack of clear guidelines or even realistic guidelines handed down from leadership within massage therapy. A lot of discussion of, well, what is the right thing to do? Should I go back to work? Is it safe? Um, and now there's more of a conversation around, well, maybe 
my decision is to just leave massage therapy. I, I might just consider a second or third career, or maybe it's time for early retirement. So that was How, pretty interesting. That is interesting. How common would you say that is? Uh, I would say about six to eight respondents so far. So six, approximately so far in this small sample, six to eight percent of people saying, well, maybe I'm just going to exit. Exactly. Um, and here recently, there's been a lot of conversation around the the use of masks. Um, there's just this controversy over, well, should we be wearing masks? Should we require clients or patients to wear masks? Um, so that, that's that been interesting, too. Uh, lots of different opinions when it comes to that. <laughs> I imagine. I imagine. Well, you, you're asking for... Uh participation. Let me just, so why would I as say a male uh, or anybody uh, practitioner, why would I do this? Why would I come give a video diary? Who's going to see it? Is it private? You know, how's it, who's it help? That kind of stuff. So we're doing this for a couple of reasons. Um, one, we're wanting to kind of triangulate our data a little bit. So when we, when you're doing mixed methods, numbers are great, right? So we can look at, we can do great things with numbers. We can know how many or how much of something, but we don't necessarily get the why. And that's what the video journals can get us a little bit more of. We can get more in depth into the why, and it can help explain why we're seeing the numbers that we're seeing. That's why I work in a mixed methods way. Um, yes, they will be private. Um, only study staff see them. And mostly that's Kimmy and Kendall are two medical students. They're the ones I'm who not going to be on YouTube if I give you a... Absolutely not. I like being on YouTube. Well, you can do that too. If you really want to upload it, you feel free, but you need All right. to do this privately. Thank you. Okay. So video contributions are private. They're being viewed by researchers to round out your quantitative data to help you answer the why question. Yes. And that we're hoping to be able to follow people over time. And like Kimmy has said, that some people are maybe leaving the profession. So we hope that maybe five years down the road, we'll have this fantastic database and we can go back and see who stayed in and who left. Who is still doing great now? What has happened to their career? What has happened to their patients? You know, we'll be able to follow these people in this, in this study for, for decades if we choose to. And this whole study started very, very quickly because the pandemic kind of evolved rather quickly. Um, within two and a half weeks, we had the study up and going. So we are really excited that we're still progressing through with getting more people in and people can still join today. We take, we, it is a rolling enrollment. So people can join the study today and stay in it. They could drop out later if they want. Um, but the idea is to get more and more people in so that we can continue over time to follow and see what's happening within the profession across the board and all of the, these different health professions as well. How are people doing? Because you see gonna, news reports. Mm -hmm. That's right. We hear, we hear the news reports, we read on social media, we read what people are saying in the forums, but to actually contribute your story to a larger project that has this potential to be followed over time, that's unique and that's actually fascinating. I tell you, it's a nice, uh, let's say a reassuring reality check to me to hear your number 68% saying they're leaving because those are, those stories always impact me when I read those. I know it's a, it's natural, it's inevitable, but to get some 
uh, sense of how common it is, or you're saying le not so common as we might think, then uh, that helps me actually. And I look forward to seeing what comes out of your study, both in okay. terms of the, the numbers you get and the kind of stories that people are willing to share. We have over 700 participants. So. Fascinating. Oh, that's great. We'll be sure to put, yeah, we'll be sure to put the, the information about participating in the show notes. Mm -hmm. But where, do, where would people go uh, right now if they wanted to participate? So we have um, social media, where, which has the links to everything in there as well. So we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And it's um, generally under Project COPE, Chronicling Healthcare Providers Pandemic Experiences, because there's apparently a few other Project Copes out there. So that's what you're looking for. Uh, we also have a website, which I hope that you all will link for us so I don't have to mm -hmm. say it out loud right now. Yeah, but social media project <laughs> COPE, you say. Project COPE, chronicling, yeah. chronicling healthcare providers' pandemic experiences. I think I got it. Yeah. Great. And we'll and we will make to sure to plug that in the show notes to the mm -hmm. other um, link for the site as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, great. Well, thank you all both you very much us. for your your discussion. There's some fascinating issues, a number of other things that I'm sure we could dive into uh, for much greater length here. But uh, I really want to thank you both for some some very insightful commentary and and interesting uh, views on some of these different things that we're wading ourselves through right now. Um, really, I think um, we can all mark this as a big period of growth for us in lots of different ways here. Yeah, thank you both. Yeah, Thank you very much for having us on. We should say thanks to our sponsors and to stop by our site, thethinkingpractitioner.com, for the show notes, the links we mentioned, transcripts, and lots of extras. Whitney, where can people find you? Uh, they can find us on the interwebs over at academyofclinicalmassage.com and also on social under my name, Whitney Lowe, and Twitter and Facebook, lots of other places over there. And Till, where can people find you on the web? advanced-trainings.com or my name, Till Luca, on social. You can email us questions. We love to get your questions, your stories, you. uh, your complaints. If you got them, we love all that stuff. Email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media in those places we mentioned. That sounds follow great. us. Yeah, please follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Tell a friend. And thanks again to our guests today. Yep. Thank you to our guests. And thank you all for listening. And uh, we will see you again soon. Thanks.